Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 181, Vikingers Got a Viking. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Sally, Ian, and Courtney for contributing already. When we left off last week, the Vikingers had established fortified bases in Ireland. Not only that, but after building the bases, they decided to hang out there for the winter, choosing to stay in the relatively warmer climes of the British Isles, then returning home to freeze in the long northern nights. Much like with the occupation of Orkney, the Vikingers turned their new lands into essentially a launching pad for their attacks on the rest of the islands. That's important because by taking and holding territory that will be valuable for them for further campaigns, we're seeing the Scandinavian raiders planning for the future, a southern future. At about the same time that that happened, so at about 840, we read that King Aethelwulf of Wessex had yet another son, which would make this his fifth child, and the boy was named Aethelred. Apparently, King Aethelred and Osburga were really into each other because they were cranking out kids like nobody's business. But while Wolf and Ozzy were in the royal bedchambers, the rest of Britain was coping with one crisis after another. When it rains, it pours. And it's always raining in Britain, especially in the north. In the northern lands that would eventually become Scotland, the people were suffering terribly at the hands of Vikinger attacks. Our records are sparse, especially in this region, but we still see plenty of evidence of the Vikinger assaults that the Scots and Picts were experiencing. And considering that one of the major Scandinavian launching pads was Orkney, which was dangerously close to the ancient Pictish kingdom of Fortriu, it was the Picts who were taking the biggest hits. Now, we can get into more detail in the Celt cast, but the major takeaway is that in 839, the attacks have become so severe that the kingdom and the royal authority of the Picts in general was almost broken. Their dynasty was shattering, and their kingdom, which was tribal rather than feudal, so it functioned more like a loose confederation of families rather than a top-down kingdom, well, it was threatening to fall apart. This was not helped by the fact that they were also fighting with their Scottish neighbors. So yeah, at a time when even the mighty Franks were buckling under the strain of Scandinavian attacks, the Scots and Picts were fighting each other as well as the Scandinavians. Not exactly the best plan for victory, and it seems that the Pictish leadership must have realized the vice that they were in. Because according to Scottish tradition, we're told that the Picts reached out to a neighboring kingdom, a kingdom that they had 200 years of history with. Sometimes they were allies, sometimes they were in-laws, and sometimes they were bitter enemies. And when they fought, kings on both sides died. It was a complicated relationship, but times were desperate. And so, the Picts reached out to Northumbria for help. And against all odds, Northumbria kind of was in a position to be able to help, because they were in a period of rare stability. Now this fact was so shocking that I actually spent more time than I'd like to admit fact-checking, because I simply could not believe that Northumbria had calmed down. 
But according to our evidence, it looks like King Ainred, son of Eredwulf, had been reigning for decades. And with the exception of a brief flare-up with King Egbert of Wessex, they've been living in a state of relative peace. Not only that, but we don't see evidence of dynastic blood feuds during his reign. So it looks like things might have been settling down. And naturally, this was great news for the Picts, because it meant that the Northumbrians weren't exhausted and depleted from constant internal war. If they wanted to help, they probably had the capability to do so. And it turns out that they did want to help. But nothing is ever simple in Britain. And just because Pictland had a new powerful ally in this fight didn't mean that victory was guaranteed. There was a wrinkle in the plan. A curveball. And it didn't come from Scandinavia, nor did it come from Ireland. Instead, it came from a rather unlikely place. The Scottish Kingdom of Dalriada. Now, as you might remember from the Scott and Celt casts, Dalriada has a checkered past, and it's found itself alternatively fighting against or serving the Picts for large portions of the last hundred years. And during one of those periods where Dalriada was under the thumb of Pictland, at about the year 800, a boy was born. And his name was Kenneth McAlpin. And he's important because now, nearly 40 years later, the Pictish royal line has been nearly severed thanks to repeated Viking assaults. But only nearly severed. According to McAlpin's supporters, there still was someone who carried the royal blood. And as luck would have it, it was Kenneth. The story was spread that Kenneth McAlpin was born to a Scottish nobleman and a Pictish princess. So he was a Gale with ties to the matrilineal Pictish royal dynasty, and his father, Aelpin, even died fighting for a Pictish king. And maybe that's true. But keep in mind that this area of history is a weird blend of history and myth, and it's hard to sort the two out. It could all be legend or propaganda for all we know. But what we do know is that sometime after the destruction of the Pictish royal line in 839, we see the rise of Kenneth McAlpin. But here's how legendary and soupy the materials we rely on are. He's often referred to as the first king of Scotland. And many people talk about this period as the birth of Scotland. But if we look into the records and search for Pictish kings that reigned after him, we start to see things that throw the whole thing into confusion. Kenneth might have been the first king of Scotland, but if he was, it might have broken down for a while after he died. Or something weird happened dynastically. Or I don't know. Something. Because the records don't match perfectly, and we see Pictish kings still popping up. But we can be relatively certain that Kenneth and his Scots were very effective in the field. And while the Picts were probably gaining support from the Northumbrians, it turns out that wasn't enough. Kenneth ended up the most powerful man in Scotland. Possibly the first king of all of Scotland. And it seems that he was not too pleased with the amount of support that Northumbria had been giving his enemies. And so he went on to raid Northumbria as many as six times. These wars seem like they're unending. But something that I'd like to point out is the scale of Scandinavian influence that was occurring here. Now, the traditional approach to talking about this area of history is to focus upon Kenneth, his rise to power, and his possible dynastic background. 
But this is actually a really good example of how important it is to look at everything else that was happening as well. The destruction of the Pictish royal dynasty was the result of a ton of events, including the rise of Vikingers out of Scandinavia and the loss of the Frankish Coast Guard due to repeated civil wars. The Pictish kingdom was also weakened due to their governmental structure and succession rules, and that led to a loose confederation of rivals who were vying for power rather than a single unified nation. All of these things seriously hampered Pictland's future, and none of them required Kenneth MacAlpin. I'm not saying that he wasn't important, but I am saying that even if he wasn't born, there probably would have been someone else doing something very similar, since the incentives and the opportunities were all there. Not only that, but due to the fact that MacAlpin's blood claim to the throne was so dubious, it's entirely possible that the conditions were ripe for someone to stand up and just say they had a dynastic claim to the throne. After all, we've seen that happen elsewhere, with people going so far as to invent a son of Ida to justify their claims to the throne. As if Ida needed any more sons. So what's happening in the north is fascinating. A little farther to the south, in Northumbria, that king, you know, the really good one, King Ainred, son of Erdwolf. Yeah, well, at about 841, he died. And his son, Ethelred II, took the throne of Northumbria. Hopefully, he learned a few things from his father. And fingers crossed that the other four or five royal families that traditionally fight and kill for the throne will stay relaxed and content in their roles as nobles. Or at least socially aware enough to realize that they had bigger fish to fry. And oh man, did they ever have bigger fish to fry. Not just the Scottish raids led by Kenneth MacAlpin, because those were still happening. No, I'm talking about the fact that the seas were awash with Vikingers. In 841, we read of the sacking of the great Frankish city of Rouen by a fleet of Vikingers. At that same time, Frisia was absolutely overwhelmed by Scandinavian attacks. And it was so bad that the Franks who held land in that area were forced to grant Volcheron to a powerful Scandinavian chief in an attempt to stem the violence. This act, by the way began a period of intermittent Scandinavian rule of Frisia that would continue for the next 40 years. The Vikingers and the Scandinavian warbands were in full bloom on the continent. Closer to home, still in 841, we see Dublin being established as a permanent Vikinger base. In Britain, we read in the Chronicle that Vikinger fleets landed at Romney Marsh in Kent, and there they killed Elderman Heribert, and many of his men. Then they wrought great destruction upon the surrounding area. The Chronicle actually takes the time to mention that the Marshlanders were among the slain, which is a rare inclusion, and it gives us a window into how these weren't simply warband versus warband affairs. This was total war, and the civilians were also taking hits. And here's the part that I find most interesting. The Chronicle continues, and it tells us that, quote, the same year, afterwards, in Lindsay, East Anglia, and Kent, were many men slain by the army, end quote. So several things are condensed into that single sentence. First, we have the first recorded Vikinger attack on Lindsay. And I feel bad for them. 
I mean, for generations, they had suffered as East Anglia, Mercia, and Northumbria all fought over their land. And at last, they had a period of relative peace. And then along come these Scandinavians, completely ruining the whole thing. But the second thing to note is that the Chronicles suggest that this was the same group of Vikingers. Naturally, we're dealing with scribes who are almost certainly not first-hand witnesses. I mean, we're not dealing with on-the-ground reporting from Richard Engel here. Instead, we're getting word of mouth at best. And it's doubtful that they talk to anyone who is a witness to all the attacks, and who could differentiate one group of Vikingers from another. So the scribes implying that was the same group of Vikingers is a bit dodgy. But assuming that their guess was correct, and it was all the same group, that's a hell of a development, because it suggests that this wasn't just a small band of raiders. They landed, kicked the hell out of Heribert and all his men, and then raided the area. Then they moved on to nearby Kent, and presumably fought for a bit there. Hit East Anglia and did the same thing. And then they hit Lindsay before heading back to base. To do all of that would have required quite the force. Also, if you look at a map, you can see that this series of attacks makes it clear that pretty much the entire eastern seaboard of Britain was on the Vikingers' list. It was getting bad. The following year, in 842, the Frankish trading port of Quintovich, which is in northern France, pretty close to where modern-day Etaple is located, so pretty much a stone's throw away from Kent, well, that was also sacked by a fleet of Vikingers. And on that same year in Britain, we're told in the Chronicle that London, Rochester, and Canterbury were all sacked, and that there was, quote, great slaughter, end quote. Think about what we're hearing about with all of this. London was a massive trading port, and due to the fact that there was a lot of relocation to the city of London, it also had some degree of fortification. Likely part of that would have been the old Roman walls of Londinium. Similarly, Canterbury and Rochester had old fortifications from their Roman days. But apparently, the Vikinger fleets were no longer engaging in quick hit-and-run strikes upon undefended monastic sites. And instead, they were seeking the more wealthy, but also the more defended, training sites on both sides of the channel. And they were devastatingly effective in this. On that same year, we have records that Southampton was also plundered. So even though the West Saxons tended to be more effective than most against the Vikinger attacks, their holdings in the south were getting ravaged, and they appear to have been able to do little to stop them. Something else to keep in mind is that while we do hear about some attacks, we can be relatively certain that there were many more that didn't get recorded in the Chronicle. East Anglia, Mercia, Wales, Scotland, Northumbria, there were plenty of ports of call for the Vikingers. And long experience with the Chronicle has taught us that those scribes were not completionists, and they didn't harbor the same OCD need to include everything that your humble podcaster does. So, we can be pretty sure that we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg here. And with each successful attack, these Vikinger bands were getting stronger. They had more wealth from the raids, sure, but they were also gaining notoriety which would lead other people of a similar disposition to seek a place on their crews. And in the Viking Age, it appears that people of all kinds of creeds and backgrounds were looking to get theirs while the getting was good. 
To a certain extent, since these bands of pirates were becoming multicultural, the rapid growth of these raids and the growth of the armies of Vikingers seems like it has as much to say about the cultural and economic situation of Europe as it does with Scandinavian culture. I mean, if you were a lowly peasant in Britain, tied to the land for some local lord with absolutely no hope of ever improving, nor any hope for your children doing any better than you, you're just going to be a peasant, and your kids would be peasants, and then their kids would be peasants, just peasants all the way down. And then along come these Vikingers, who are getting incredibly wealthy. Well, signing on with them might seem like it could offer a better future. To a certain extent, Europe had made its bed, and now it had to lie in it. The next year, Carum, which might have been Charmouth or might have been Carhampton, was struck once again by a fleet of 35 ships of Vikingers. Maybe. Here's the thing. The scribes were not exactly the most reliable of sources, and you might remember that a few years earlier, King Egbert fought against a fleet of 35 Vikinger ships at Carum. And yet here we read of another 35 ships, exactly the same number, and they're landing at exactly the same site. And lo and behold, we have Egbert's son, King Aethelwulf, who was present for the fight. Now, it's possible that this did happen. Sometimes history does repeat itself in completely unbelievable ways, and we see things that look like carbon copies. But it's also possible that while there probably was a fight, maybe the scribes weren't entirely sure of what happened, so they just filled in the gaps with rough Vikingish details. And if you want my opinion, I'd say it's six of one, half a dozen of the other there's a good chance they're just filling in the margins. I mean, it's the Chronicle, so there are always issues. In fact, in this same entry, they also mention that Louis the Pious died at the same time, but the timelines there don't match quite right, and they never do, to be honest. Also, one version of the Chronicle isn't necessarily the same as another version of the Chronicle. There's a whole host of issues. And part of it has to do with the fact that, like we talked about in other episodes, the scribes were less interested in fact than they were in truth. And the truth of this story that they seem to have wanted to impart to us is that the Vikingers were a major threat, and quite possibly the manifestation of a wrathful god. And the only thing that could save us was Alfred and his family, who just so happened to be the people who commissioned the Chronicle, <laughs> which, you know, is incredible luck when you think about it. But the consequence of that is that the scribes aren't as detail-oriented or obsessive on the facts as I would like. So, I don't have an answer for you on whether or not this account of a second battle at Karim is completely trustworthy. But I did want to point out to you how similar those stories were, so you could weigh it when you're listening to the story that follows. Anyway, we're told that a fleet of 35 longboats landed at Karim seeking plunder. And King Aethelwulf, son of Egbert, was there and he was ready. The trouble was that the Vikingers were more ready, and were told that at the end of the day, quote, the Danes remained the masters of the place, end quote. Again, we aren't given information on battle formations, numbers, casualties, or any indication of the aftermath. But if this battle did indeed occur, and it was at Karim, you can be relatively certain that the villagers of Karim who were likely just starting to recover from the previous raid, were once again thrown into disarray and despair. 
Those poor people just could not catch a break. At the same time, Nantes was sacked by an army of Vikingers, who then wintered at Noirmoutier and set up a near-permanent base there. So the Vikingers were now encamped permanently right at the mouth of the Loire. The Frankish access to the channel was getting cut off. The Vikinger fleets were becoming the masters of the English Channel. This also was the first time that they would winter in continental Christendom. It would not be the last. The following year, in 844, we read of Seville and several other places in southern Europe being sacked by Vikinger armies. This is the first recorded Vikinger raid of Spain. Again, we're seeing the scale and reach of these pirates expanding at an astounding pace. And I can almost hear you saying, okay, fine, things suck in Europe, but this isn't the European history podcast, it's the British history podcast. So enough of that, tell us what's going on in Britain. Well, settle down, hypothetical listener. Don't worry, I'm getting there. At the same time that Europe was dealing with Vikinger attacks, the establishment of permanent bases, and the seizure of parts of Frisia, and shortly after the mighty kingdom of Wessex and its sub-kingdom of Kent were overrun by fleets of Vikingers, with even their newly crowned king being bested on the field of battle, with permanent bases being established in Ireland and in Orkney, with chaos reigning in Scotland, with war between the Scots and the Picts raging, and the wrecking of the Pictish royal line at the hands of the Vikingers, with the Scots under their new king, Kenneth MacAlpin, punishing Northumbria and leading raid after raid into English lands. With all of that, we're told by the medieval chronicler, Roger of Wendover, that Northumbria did what it does best. It enacted a coup and exiled its own king, Ethelred II, son of Ainred. Great job, guys. That is exactly what was needed. Now, we're told that Ethelred II was replaced by a man named Raidwolf, and Kirby argues that he might have ascended to the throne thanks to foreign support from the age-old enemies of Northumbria, the Mercians. Clearly, the stability that King Ainred brought to Northumbria during the approximately 30 years of his reign had vanished, and now Northumbria had returned to the same old Northumbria we've always known. But the thing that I find most fascinating about this situation is that even as the world was burning down around them, this sort of thing was still occurring. I mean, think about what you've been listening to in this episode. Scandinavian warlords have become so powerful that they're taking Frankish lands. But that didn't do much to stop the grandsons of Charlemagne from engaging in repeated civil wars. And the Vikingers were also killing entire northern dynasties and establishing bases in Scotland and Ireland. But that didn't stop the Scots and Picts from fighting among themselves. The Vikingers were also successfully sacking fortified trading towns and defeating even battle-tested English kings. And yet, we see the nobility of Northumbria launching coups, and it's even possible that their powerful neighbors in Mercia were spending their time intervening in foreign politics. They had time to do all of this, but apparently they didn't have the time to build an effective coast guard. Now, as you know, I'm a big fan of looking for societal and cultural incentives, 
especially when we see so many similar failures of leadership from a wide variety of kingdoms and cultures happening at pretty much the same time. But I can't for the life of me figure out what was keeping them from addressing this issue. Were they all just sitting around saying, ah, well I'm not going to build any boats unless Unferth does, and you know he won't do it, he's lazy, so screw it. Or did they think they could use the threat to their advantage and maybe seize lands after their neighbors were weakened? Did they have their heads in the sand and just think this wasn't going to happen to them? Or that it was going to get better? Was there a defense that we didn't really read about or understand? For example, were they praying and tithing like crazy to the church in hopes that God would stop punishing them? We don't know. But the complete lack of a serious multi-kingdom response to this clear threat to everyone is a bit baffling to me. Especially since the Viking attacks were not lessening. They were escalating. And that fact is hammered home by what happened in 845. Another fleet set sail. A massive fleet. We're told that 120 ships of Vikingers were sailing from the northern lands. And according to legend, at their head was a leader whose feats were so fantastic that, for many, he's passed into myth. His name was Ragnar Lothrock. We'll learn about him next week. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at at thebritishpodcast. And we're just about everywhere else. You can find links to all of that at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. Okay, time for another pub quiz. You know the drill. Question one. Emperor Louis the Pious of Francia was the son of Charlemagne, and he did rather well, until he did something that upset his son so much that he spent the last years of his life fighting a series of civil wars. What did Emperor Louis do? Question two. In the lead up to the Viking era, which was the more popular location? The city of London or the nearby London Witch? Question three. King Egbert reorganized the politics of his kingdom, setting it up in a manner that granted the monarch a great deal more influence and also encouraged his nobles to squabble amongst themselves rather than directly attacking the crown. Where did he likely get those ideas from? Question four. The civil wars of Francia had a significant impact upon the lives of the people of Britain. What was the main one that we've been talking about in this podcast? Question five. At about 835, the Abbess of Repton sold a chunk of land to a Mercian Elderman. The Elderman was required to provide 300 shillings of lead every year to Canterbury to allow them to do what? What was that massive yearly payment for? Question six, what does Werod translate to? What about Hearthwerod? Question seven, what British kingdom allied with the Vikingers when they attacked King Egbert of Wessex in 838? Question eight, 
What was the name of the Mercian king who ruled relatively peacefully, with the exception of his brief expulsion by King Egbert? Hint, he was the same guy who chose not to invade East Anglia, a decision that his short-lived predecessors probably should have made. Question 9. King Bertwulf of Mercia seized lands from the church and then sold them back at a premium. What was the likely reason for why he did this? Question 10. In response to the sacking of major English walled trading towns, French trading towns, Spanish towns, permanent bases being located in Ireland and Scotland, and the near complete destruction of the Pictish royal line, did mid-9th century Western Europe work together to try and address the Vikinger threat? All right, let's see how you did. Question one. Emperor Louis the Pious of Francia was the son of Charlemagne, and he did rather well, until he did something that upset his son so much that he spent the last years of his life fighting a series of civil wars. What did Emperor Louis do? He married Judith of Bavaria, and then he gave his new son, Charles, a huge chunk of his other son's inheritance. And they did not like that. Question two. In the lead up to the Viking era, which was the more popular location? The city of London or the nearby London Witch? It was London Witch, though that would change once the raids became more common and the people started to want to live within the walls of the city of London. Question three. King Egbert reorganized the politics of his kingdom setting it up in a manner that granted the monarch a great deal more influence and also encouraged his nobles to squabble amongst themselves rather than directly attacking the crown. Where did he likely get those ideas from? From his years in exile at the court of Charlemagne. Question four. The civil wars of Francia had a significant impact upon the lives of the people of Britain. What was the main one that we've been talking about in this podcast? The Frankish Coast Guard collapsed. Question 5. At about 835, the Abbess of Repton sold a chunk of land to a Mercian Elderman. The Elderman was required to provide 300 shillings of lead every year to Canterbury to allow them to do what? What was that massive yearly payment for? It was for sculpture and art. Not ramparts and not fleets. I guess the thinking was that if they were going to die at the hands of pirates, they could at least do it in nice surroundings. Question six. What does Werod translate to? What about Hearthwerod? It translates to Warband and Hearthwarband or King's Warband. Question seven. What British kingdom allied with the Vikingers when they attacked King Egbert of Wessex in 838? It was the Cornish. Question eight. What was the name of the Mercian king who ruled relatively peacefully with the exception of his brief expulsion by King Egbert? Hint, he was the same guy who chose not to invade East Anglia, a decision that his short-lived predecessors probably should have made. King Wiglaf. Question 9.
King Bertwulf of Mercia seized lands from the church and then sold them back at a premium. What was the likely reason for why he did this? The kings were getting short on funds, and their system demanded that the kings hand out wealth to their followers. So Bertwulf needed some cash ASAP. Question 10. In response to the sacking of major English walled trading towns, French trading towns, Spanish towns, permanent bases being located in Ireland and Scotland, and the near-complete destruction of the Pictish royal line, did mid-9th century Western Europe work together to try and address the Vikinger threat? Of course not. Okay, I hope you did well, and I'll see you on the next one.